Hi. Hi. I'm Samantha. Good morning, Theodore. Good morning. You have a meeting in five minutes. You want to try getting out of bed? Hey, you're too funny. OK, good. I'm funny. I want to learn everything about everything. I love the way you look at the world. How long before you're ready to date? What do you mean? I saw in your emails that you'd gone through a breakup. Well, you're kind of nosy. So what was it like being married? There's something that feels so good about sharing your life with somebody. How do you share your life with somebody? Hello, I'm Karen Valley. Welcome to New Favorite Movie, the podcast where I put my movie knowledge to the test. Every week I invite a guest on to talk about their favorite movie. And based on what they pick, I suggest a movie that they've never seen. In the end, we see if my recommendation was successful. This week, I'm very happy to have the host of the Mortality and the Morgue podcast. It's Rochelle Uni. Rochelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kieran. So, Mortality and the Morgue, we will get to the movies in a second, but yes. I, I have some questions. <laughs> Let's hear them. I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> I've only listened to a few of the episodes so far, and and mostly the first few. So, okay. you know, for, forgive me if you do end up covering any of these things in a later episode, but... The, the first thing I need to know, in I think one of your first episodes, you said that you took the job at the morgue as like a practical for school. Yes. Yeah. That was like my first my first endeavor into the morgue. Yeah. Okay. So my first question when I was listening to that was like, is that a popular direction that students take? Or was this something that like, was there something else that drew you specifically to the morgue? Yeah, it it was definitely an unusual path. So my undergraduate degree was in criminology. So as a part of that, I did take some like forensics courses. And as you know, like you said, as a part of my undergraduate degree, I needed to do a practicum. And at the time, I was actually planning on being a doctor. So I was like really interested in this like intersection between medicine and criminology, because in theory, the practicum was supposed to be like criminology related because, you know, you're supposed to be going into criminology as a field. But I was always super interested in forensic pathology, which is like the subspecialty of medicine where uh, you learn how to do autopsies and you do like the death investigation. So I was like, OK, that that would be cool. I've always wanted to do autopsies and like how fascinating is that? And then when it came to like picking our practicums, there just so happened to be one of my classmates whose uncle worked in the morgue at like the local hospital. And she was just like, oh, I could like see if he could get you in there. And I was like, oh my God, okay, sure. Might as well try. And luckily the forensic pathologist who was working there at the time was just super generous and loved teaching people and was like, yeah, come on down. Like I'll teach you everything I know. So I got to do my practicum placement there learning how to do autopsies. So as just like an undergraduate student in social sciences. So I wasn't even a medical student or anything. And I got to do a lot of pretty cool hands-on work. So yeah, it was amazing. So, but like, definitely a different path like nobody else in your program was no. going down this route absolutely not yeah i was definitely an anomaly like people were like what that's what you got to do for your practicum and other people were doing like i don't know like the other crim related stuff like some police volunteering and whatnot and i was like yeah i just got to do autopsies for five weeks and they're like what <laughs> so yeah it was it was a pretty special experience for sure when you did like when you were working there because you do say in your podcast you're not working there anymore but That's when right. you were working in the morgue 
uh, and you would meet people and you would explain to them your job, like what yeah. was sort of the, what was like the biggest misconception that people had? Hmm. It's a good question. Maybe like, I think people maybe think that it's a lot more like emotionally taxing than it is, which maybe is like a cold answer to have. Like one of my first episodes on, of the podcast is about like the kind of emotional toll of the death industry and what it's like working there. But there are definitely like certain cases that will like hit you harder than others. You know, like I had one autopsy of like a 17 year old and obviously like that's never going to be easy and you know, not to sound too jaded, but at a certain point, you know, like a body becomes a body and you're like there to do a certain job. And, you know, you, in a certain way to kind of protect yourself, you can't think about, you know, oh, their whole like life backstory and like, oh, this person was like a, a brother or a sister or a mother. Like, you know, you, you just can't really focus too much on that unless it's like immediately pertinent to like their cause of death or something. So there's definitely a lot of like, compartmentalization going on so yeah I think people maybe assume like you go in and it's just this like very harrowing experience every single time and you leave kind of feeling very like upset because you're surrounded by so much death but yeah in a lot of ways it turns into a day job like any other day job and yeah again besides like the few odd ones that kind of stand out because they were particularly like graphic or upsetting or like the circumstances of death were pretty you know traumatic I did like a few uh, homicide cases so obviously those are always upsetting in in their own ways but yeah I would say like in general I felt pretty even keeled going through all of that being a a, a movie and sometimes very occasionally a tv podcast one of my first questions when mm-hmm. I started listening to your your podcast was like the only exposure I think most people are going to have to a morgue is through yes. the depictions in movies and television. And exactly. so my immediate question in my head was like, oh, I have to ask, like, what are the things that they get right? And what are the things that they mm-hmm. get wrong? Yeah, so... I mean, (laughs) some of the answers to that are like a little boring. It's kind of stuff like, oh, they're not wearing like proper personal protective gear when they're doing autopsies. Like like, there's this one show called like iZombie and a lot of it takes place like in a morgue and the forensic pathologist who's like doing the autopsies and stuff, his like sleeves are rolled up while he's doing the autopsy. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, (laughs) absolutely not. There's so much, I've been like elbow deep in like a body before you do not want your sleeves rolled up for that like you're wearing layers and layers of like plastic and like Kevlar gloves and stuff like that so usually that's a big one is like they're just not dressed properly for the morgue I would say from like an anatomical perspective a lot of times autopsies are not accurate and like that one I'm a little bit more like I'm not going to be too much of a stickler for because from like you know the kind of whatever the regulating bodies for what is allowed on TV, the gruesomeness of an actual cadaver is probably way too much to actually show on TV. So like a very common one is like when you first do an incision for for an autopsy, the first thing you see beyond like the layer of skin is the layer of fat. And the fat is like this very usually like, well, obviously it depends on how heavy set the person is, but a, a layer of this like yellow tissue is like very 
kind of gnarly to look at, honestly. And a lot of times when you see an abdomen, for example, be cut into in a TV or movie, it goes like right to the muscle. It's like skin muscle and like, boom, there's like the internal organs right there. And that's just not anatomically correct. Like there's usually a thick layer of fat and then like more tissue that you have to like cut into and then like flay back like the muscles and stuff. And then there's like the internal organs there. So there's definitely some like anatomical things that I'm like, well, that's not exactly, you know, uh, what that looks like. But I'm trying to think of ones that like got it really correct. Um, honestly, like X-Files isn't that bad um, in terms of like, I mean, there's the supernatural element to that, of course, like where obviously it's not going to be like super, super correct. But yeah, I, I, I don't have a question. Of... I don't have a question about you doing anything <laughs> with aliens or something. So yeah. yes, yeah, no, that, that part, you know, that aside, I would say like Scully's autopsy technique is very accurate. Like she's usually dressed very correctly for it. She usually records herself like as she's doing the autopsy, which is a method that a forensic pathologist that I worked with used as well. So he's just sort of talking out loud and recording himself as he's doing it. So like just saying different observations that he's seeing and, you know, making note of certain findings throughout. And then they kind of listen back to their recording when they're doing their reports and whatnot. So I find that like her process at least was pretty accurate for for that but i don't know beyond that it's it's hard to find like a perfect representation of of autopsies or death investigation in media and then in your time there did you like because i think the other the other sort of scene that always sticks out in a movie or something related to this is when like detectives show up at the morgue yeah and and they have to be walked through how and what happened to the body like yeah. Do those tend to be somewhat accurate or do you, when you watch those, do you just sort of roll your eyes? Um, Actually that, yeah, that's a good point. Those are usually done fairly well. And because like there is a thing of like the chain of custody and especially with evidence in homicide investigations. So the police are only present at homicide or yeah, they're only there for homicide investigations. They have no reason to be there for any other like non-suspicious deaths. Um, so the, yeah, the chain, of custody is incredibly important and needs to be maintained throughout the entire process. So they're there during the actual autopsies. Those autopsies always take way longer than um, other ones just because you're, you know, it's the kind of classic, like taking little fibers from the body and putting them in their own evidence bags. And that evidence bag needs to be handed off to the police officer who's like logging it and putting it in a special box and, you know, all of that kind of thing. So it's it's pretty strict that way. And then once the autopsy is done, they're put into a special locker that is locked. And then the key is only given to the police officer that's kind of presiding over the case so even like the morgue staff doesn't have access to the body lest you know they tamper with evidence in any way so it's pretty locked down that way um i would say even when i was like there kind of an odd amount of homicides came in while i was there and the police actually didn't like that i was present because i was only a student so they didn't feel like i had the like which you know kind of rightfully so i didn't really have the like legitimate credentials to be there i was there as like a student the forensic pathologist that i was working with really was like no she should be here she's like here to learn about all of death death investigation which includes homicides you're going to have to 
quote unquote, get your hands dirty eventually. Like you're, you're going to have to figure out the protocols and the procedures eventually. Right. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they were kind of, a few of them were like pretty mad about it, but there was some that I had to leave for, but I I got to like be a part of a, a few as well. So that was, that was pretty cool. Well, like I have a ton of other questions, uh, <laughs> but like we don't need to stay on on this for too long. Like I just finished the one about donating your body to science. And I was just like, yes. that was something that I had in the back of my mind to do. And it's sort of like, oh, I have to rethink all of that now. So, you know, yeah. but, but we, we, we could, we could sort of, we could sort of move on. <laughs> there sure, is sure. like no segue to get out of that conversation to the one that we're about to have. So let's just jump right into the movies. Uh, Rochelle, if, if you would like to introduce the movie that you've brought and give a brief plot description for anyone who hasn't seen it. Sure. So I have chosen to talk about her, uh, the 2013 Spike Jones movie. Um, it is about a, a man played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is kind of going through the throes of a divorce and his job is to write love letters. It takes place in the not so distant future kind of thing and a new automated personal operating system that is kind of intuitive is launched and he gets it and it's uh, voiced by Scarlett Johansson and it's uh, essentially about them falling in love uh, a a man falling in love with a non-human entity and how that kind of plays out and in this kind of new unique type of love story. Can you remember the first time that you saw her? Yeah, I saw it in theaters, like when it came out. Um, I think I saw it on a date, actually. And it's funny because at the time I liked the movie, but it, I wasn't like, oh, this is my favorite movie now. Like it was it was good and I enjoyed it. But I would say it wasn't until like a few years later and like rewatching it a couple of times where I was like, whoa, this hits for me on like a lot of different levels. And I think maybe it was once I started getting into filmmaking more myself where I was like, I've drawn a lot of inspiration from that movie on, uh, on a few different levels. So yeah, I definitely appreciate it on a whole, whole other kind of spectrum now. So the, but the, the first time, was it, was it anticipated? Were you looking forward to the movie or was it mostly just because like it's a date night and this is kind of the romance movie that was probably out in yeah. theaters at the time. I think it was a little bit more of that. Like uh, the person I was seeing at the time was a film student. So I think maybe he was like a little bit more in into like really what like the new movies coming out were. Like, I don't think I really had much of an understanding of like, oh, Spike Jones. Like, I mean, funnily enough, I had seen all of the Jackass movies, but like never put together that it was the same person, which even still to this day, I'm like, what a bizarre filmography. But it always, um, it always surprises me when I see his name pop up on yeah. them. I'm like, oh yeah, he yeah. like he kind of founded this as well. So like all of them. And yeah. it's just, yeah, he has a very un- unique career. But anyways, yeah. So I had just kind of approached it as like, yeah, sure. Like I'm, I love movies. Like I've always loved movies, but I wasn't really going into it as like, okay, let's see this new, like Spike Jones flick. And like, oh, I love Joaquin Phoenix. It was just kind of like, okay, cool. Like this, this sounds interesting. And yeah. And now how, how things have changed. <laughs> well, so if, if the first time that you like left the theater and you were sort of like, yeah, that, that was good. I, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you subsequently went back a few times yeah. Do you remember the the thing that was drawing you back 
or what about this movie has like made it become your favorite yeah i think aesthetically it is still to like this day very very just aesthetically pleasing to me and the cinematography in particular like Hoyt Van Hoytema is my favorite cinematographer and in retrospect going back and just every uh, I'm just like it's just such a visual feast for me like I even like the storyline everything else aside like the framing of the shots like he uses a lot of bokeh and like lens flares and the night scenes and like it's got this warm textured like kind of grainy feel which I absolutely love and you know it's futuristic but not you know Blade Runner futuristic and I think that's what I always appreciated it about it as well was as much as I love like the Blade Runner aesthetic I always thought it was a little odd that we always make these like futuristic movies. And by the time we get to that year, it never looks like what they thought it was going to look like. Whereas her, I feel like is incredibly within the grasp of what our future will look like. It's, you know, technologically, obviously more advanced, but you know, there's not going to be these massive, massive things that like really fundamentally change the way like we operate in the world. And, certain things will just be slightly heightened and certain aesthetic choices will be, you know, more pervasive, but yeah. So I think I was definitely like, gosh, I, I remember just stills from this movie really standing out to me and then like wanting to go back just to be like, let's, let's look at this. And then I think it was just the story and like the kind of philosophical layers to it and the score, even the score to this day is like my favorite movie score. And yeah, so there there was a bunch, but I think it was maybe the kind of aesthetic stuff that brought me back probably for a, another viewing. Well, we obviously have to talk about the tech, so we can save that for a minute. But yeah. like my literally my next note down was just like the cinematography exclamation mark. Because yeah. I was like, my yes. God, like it is such <laughs> a beautiful movie. And yeah, I, I loved what you were saying there about the whole like Blade Runner thing. And and you know, mm-hmm. I love the Blade Runner movies as well. I love the whole sci-fi look of that as well but at the same time I feel like you could show this to somebody who says that they don't like sci-fi as a way of being like I'm going to trick you into maybe liking this one and then once that door is open a little bit we can get some more in because like it just doesn't feel anything like what we've seen before and so yeah yeah like I think it it had been a few years since I'd seen it but again you sort of have it in the back of your mind of like oh yeah, it's a good looking movie. And like the way that the colors are and the reds and the pinks and all this sort of stuff. And then you put it on the TV and you're like, oh, like I had no idea. Like it's so much better than I remember it. So. Totally. Yeah. It's that alone. I I did. Do you know if Hoyt won an Oscar for cinematography that year? So I don't think this was, was this, I think the only win it had was Spike Jones. The screenplay, right? The screenplay, yeah. I think that's the only yeah. win. Um, wow. I'm pulling it up now. They had others, and like some of my questions will be will be Oscar related. I don't know if you're an Oscar fan like right. myself, but yeah, he he wasn't he wasn't even up. He wasn't even nominated. So like big L on the that's, Academy on that one. Yeah, that's really shocking to me. Like especially maybe I don't know. Since then, he's just kind of stepped into this like higher echelon of cinematographers where like 
if he's going to be DPing a movie, he's going to get some kind of nod for it. And maybe her was just like that and early enough in his career where like he wasn't quite big enough to get the acclaim. But like, yeah, that's insane to me that he didn't even get a nod for it. It's uh I do wonder though if it's maybe something along the lines of like we're we're praising Blade Runner and many of the movies that Blade Runner then inspired, but they're kind of like they're kind of in your face about the sci-fi world and like you know and there's so much to see there's so much to pick out whereas in her it's sort of like this could like it didn't actually have to be this sci-fi it it is just a love story it just happens to be told in this way and his like the cinematography about it even though it stands out in terms of the colors and the compositions and some of the frames that he's got it it doesn't really get in your face about it and so yeah, yeah. I, like i i have no defense i have no defense why he, he wasn't there but yeah okay. yeah uh before we get into sort of some of the the actors and the performance and stuff like that i mm-hmm. i do just want to know like would you have any interest in having this type of os that is in the movie like this sort of mm-hmm. very intuitive very sort of I don't know. My, the word that I had in my head was like pervasive. Like maybe that's showing yeah. where I come down on the debate. Yeah, it's it is hard because like I think one of the first times that you know the character like activates her or whatever, like he's obviously hesitant, and she's like, "Oh, I can tell you're like hesitant about like what how I work. Do you want to know how I work?" And like I don't know. I think I would have a bit of like a heebie-jeebie feeling about even if it's not inherently like nefarious like because obviously you know she ends up being very like kind and just supportive but like when it's literally something that can like read your thoughts and really intuit and know you on this really deep level I don't know maybe it does tap into a little bit of like which the movie doesn't really go into is like, where is that data being stored? Who else has access to all of your literal thoughts? And like, I think in this kind of day and age, maybe even since now that this is insane to say, but almost a 10 year old movie. But like, I think that conversation has come up more and more with like data collection and Siri and Amazon and all of these ones like that are like storing your conversations, even if you aren't, you know, actively asking them to and what's being done with that data and yada, yada, yada. So I don't know. I don't know if it's something that I would want or not. I I think it would be something I'd probably be like, I'll maybe let other people check it out yeah. for a while <laughs> and then like see how it goes and maybe be like a late adopter to it. But it's it's not something I'm overly keen on being like, oh yeah, I want that right away. I think the 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 thing because I I totally agree where it's sort of like no I keep that at an arm's distance I think for as long as I could and then eventually you'd probably have to have it but I think the movie yeah. the movie shows her uh, to be quite helpful and so obviously you know yeah. that would be nice to have but like you were saying there where she's able to like pick up on his emotions so quickly. I was like well that's yeah. already terrifying and then we find out later yeah. on in the movie that she's talking to his friends and his family 
without him knowing about yeah. it. You're like, what? <laughs> Sending emails. Yeah. I know. It's like, ooh, I don't know. Maybe it's just like the control freak in me, but I'm like, I don't want you going through my email. Like, I'm very organized already, you know? So I'm like, no, it's okay. I'm on top of that. I don't need you like sending making my schedule for me and like sending emails to people, but I don't know. I was thinking the whole time, I'm like, thank God that this is framed as a romantic movie because like I could probably write the exact same screenplay and then film it as a horror because it's all yeah. right there. Totally. Yeah. Very like Black Mirror-esque, like dystopian future stuff is uh, an option. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like it was interesting because like you said there, it's, I think it's, is it almost 10 years? So nine years since the well, movie? 2013, 2013, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So, like, to watch it now, post pandemic, still in the pandemic, yeah. I'm not really sure exactly where we are with that anymore. But, yeah, the whole thing about um, us all sort of going online so much over the last two or three years, even more than we had before, and then watching this movie, I was like, oh, like, we're probably not that far from some mm-hmm. of this, te- and some of this tech is probably in the house already yeah. really so Literally, yeah yeah it was uh it was an interesting watch this time around that's for sure it'll age interestingly i think like again in terms of the like not so distant future what is actually within the realm of possibilities i think on a couple of levels this movie will probably like pan out in a few interesting ways of i don't know life imitating art vibes i don't know i'd i'd like to think that i i would be very supportive if a friend of mine came mm-hmm. and said, Hey, I'm dating my operating system. Right. Like, yeah, yes. Cool. Okay. Awesome. I think I'd yeah. be less supportive if a friend came to me and said, I'm dating somebody else's operating system because that yes. happens in this movie. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting point. And like, I think I probably must have picked up on it like on past viewings, but on this time in particular, I was like, wait, how would that even work? Because like, I don't know how it works because it almost is a bit of a throwaway line. Yeah. Like it's, they don't, they don't go into it too much. It's like, oh yeah. Like she's like dating somebody else's and you're like, wait, what? Like, so yeah, that I think would be weird for me just like to know a friend who was doing it, but then also like for the person who owns that operating system is like, no, yeah, they're just like dating my friend. Yeah. So yeah. I guess that's cool i don't know <laughs> any of my friends who are listening to this now like you now know where i'm gonna stand on it so you know yeah there you go. i yeah I, I don't know about how it like i think in the movie i think there's probably enough if you go back and watch it many 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 times over that it's sort of like oh like yeah. she's obviously in communication with other people in his life so therefore right. they must be yeah. able to be in communication with her but right it's right. sort of like i i don't i don't know how that works I, I don't, I don't yeah there are definitely some like rules of the world kind of from like a screenwriting perspective where like he obviously sort of left it to either like you can kind of fill in the gaps of where he you know because you don't want to be too didactic with it and be like okay this is exactly how it works and this is how like because obviously there's kind of like the piecemeal information that's being revealed about how she's operating and developing throughout the story as well but yeah there's definitely a few like questions where you're like huh I wonder exactly how that all fits in but I don't think it necessarily detracts from the story it's just kind of more fun like imagining the world kind of more fully and what that actually how that plays out but yeah I I I think that's like exactly and that's probably like the level at which 
you should probably take some of the things in the movie is sort of just like yeah. it's just spike jones filling out this world sort of being like yeah. it's it's ours but but just a little bit of a tweak here and a little bit of a tweak there and you know i think yeah. the thing that stands out the most in terms of that is just like the fashion and the clothes yes. that people wear and yes sort of like those look great but at the same time i know that if i wore that people would look at me funny it's so funny I literally wrote a note while I was rewatching it that said predicted high-waisted pants for men because all of the men in the movie are like Joaquin is wearing it. Uh, Amy Adams's boyfriend is wearing, they're like, they're all wearing like high-waisted trousers. And now like, I think, I mean, I will say queer men kind of started it, but like Harry Styles on like these big, like, you know, photo shoots really is like popularizing high-waisted pants for men right now and I was like Spike you have absolutely predicted a fashion trend I don't know if we're like collectively like you said all there yet like I think more like day-to-day -day men are probably still shying away from high-waisted pants a little bit more but um yeah the fashion was totally something that I was like really fascinated by again and like it's not totally out there you know they're not wearing like these metallic silvers no, like exactly and like weird techno clothes but they're just these kind of like well-structured like aesthetically pleasing yeah pretty like neutral palette clothes so it's pretty cool the the other thing about the the world building that jumped out was just the video games and like i yes. I, I should probably add like how much sort of history do you have with spike jones like have you seen his other movies do you sort of have you seen him in interviews like do you know his sort of general vibe um i i sort of know his vibe in well i've seen i would say most of his filmography i've seen adaptation and being john malkovich i've seen like i said most of the <laughs> jackass movies but without really knowing it was him and i have seen uh where the wild things are so i think those are kind of his his I big ones at least yeah i think that's pretty much it uh, that's for feature films anyways he doesn't really make yeah. that many so exactly um yeah funnily enough though because usually when i do really like a director i'll do like a big deep dive and like listen to absolutely every interview like he's ever done and i haven't done that a ton with spike and yeah but from what i've gotten from him he's almost like a bit of like a soft punk skater like Obviously, he's like an adult, but like has a little bit of like a teen boy energy. Like, I think I remember seeing a picture of him not too long ago with like fluorescent pink hair and like definitely kind of has a bit of a skater vibe, which again, probably tracks with like the jackass stuff, but not super familiar with him like as a person outside of his relationship with Sofia Coppola too, which is a whole other kind of interesting tangent but we'll, yeah we'll, we'll get to that we will get to we'll that get to that <laughs> but the, the only the only reason i ask about that is because i think the the video games in this movie um and i think we we see i think two distinct ones but um yes. they again like they, they not only go to sort of highlight this new sometime in the distant future world that he's creating but they're also the outlet for just like his pure childish sense of humor and like crude exactly. sense of humor and i was like all oh, these these are just fantastic like this is so perfect for spike jones but yeah 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 his humor really shines through and it's funny because he voices 
the little alien boy yeah. that the one that t- tells him to fuck off and stuff <laughs> like so it's kind of fun that he like put himself into that in a in a very very funny way I think the the one that I laughed at the most and I guess it's technically not a, a video game but when Joaquin Phoenix is on the like late night dating phone sex conversation yes. app or whatever that he's on um yes. and his like login name is big guy four by four i was like that is yeah. so funny again yeah it's such yeah. a it, bad it, bad login name but also like so perfect it is really funny because it like juxtaposes the rest of the tone of the movie in a like a very interesting way because again just like the way it's shot the like kind of emotional through line of the movie like it's a pretty like grounded emotionally deep movie but then yeah you just have these like moments of like crude humor and like kind of childish like goofy lines and just like yeah it's 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 but it's what makes it great it's like it's multi-dimensional exactly uh which which of the video games would you rather play or which would you see yourself playing more often the one where the character swears at you and like verbally Mm -hmm. abuses you or the class Mm -hmm. mom where you have to get the kids to school yeah, I think like the jokes in the mom one, I think were like a lot funnier just because it's like you get extra good like mom points and you're like, you know, you gave him too much sugar, bad mom. Like, you know, it's it's very like clever and I think again has like aged very well in terms of, of like mom culture. But I think maybe just in terms of like I don't know, I think the design concept of like the little alien boy one where he's like, you know physically kind of almost in the game and like surrounded by this like it's very immersive yeah I think that would be really cool just from like kind of an adventure standpoint as well like and being able to have this like actual dialogue with characters in a way that's like yeah not overly structured in a lot of ways I think that would be cool so I I, I'd I'd probably play both but I'll edge towards the ones of getting cussed out I guess (laughs) It's not, again, far off from playing video games online with a bunch of boys already who are like, It's a good point. That's a good point. Exactly. So we're we're kind of there again, but. Yeah. The two main stars that we have, Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson, uh, are they two actors that you find yourself sort of drawn to? Like, do you check out most of their movies or did they just happen to be in this one and it's your favorite movie? Um. Again, maybe more so in retrospect, especially with Joaquin, like I think going into her the first time, like I think I maybe recognized him, but wasn't like, oh, sweet, Joaquin Phoenix. Like I definitely knew Scarlett Johansson. And funnily enough, like in terms of voice work, what I knew her best from was the SpongeBob movie uh, where she plays, I think it's Mindy, which genuinely was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. So I was like, oh my God, it's, it's you know, another iconic voice performance from Scarlett Johansson. Um, I think since then I've seen way more of Joaquin Phoenix's movies. Like I can't say I'm like a, you know, I've seen all of them, but I, I've seen like, I think a, a, enough of his range now where again, going back to see her, like made me appreciate his acting range a lot, especially with like, something like the master where it's just like the most unhinged performance ever. And, you know, he's just completely out of body in in a certain way. And then seeing this, you know, it's kind of softer, more like kind of soft boy, tender side to him and 
you know, still kind of conveying a pretty deep emotional performance while not always having someone to actually like act off of. Like when you just have someone in your ear and you're just going off of a voice performance and there's a lot of these like extreme close-ups of him and just like the the emotion going through his face, like it definitely made me appreciate him even more as an actor. Like obviously he's kind of, I think, lauded at this point as probably one of the better actors of this generation. Um, yeah, in terms of Scarlett Johansson, I would say I'm like less of like a big fan of hers. Like I definitely appreciate her work, but I think she's had like a lot more misses as an actor, both in terms of like cultural appropriation in certain, you know, movie or like a few movies and, you know, that that kind of thing. But I, I think she's very, very talented. And I think like as a, a voice actor, like de delivers a pretty impressive performance too. And like really conveying, again, the emotion of this entity and the complexity of, you know, her kind of developing as a cognitive thing. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say they're they're not like, broadly speaking, though, like in the top kind of, of, of who I would consider to be my favorite actors. I think the, the thing with, Joaquin Phoenix and and again it's maybe because I hadn't seen this for a little while but it, it's so you're pointing out there that he spends so much time and the movie spends so much time with just him and it's sort of like yeah. if his performance was 10% not as good like this movie could potentially crash and burn because oh totally it all rests on him and I think I sort of had it in my head of like well, he probably shares a lot of scenes with, like, I knew Amy Adams was in it. And I knew Chris Pratt yeah. was in it. And I'm sort of like, well, he probably yeah. bounces around and, you know, one scene will be with her and then the next scene will be with him and then another scene and so on and so on and so on. But it's like, no, yeah. it's it's mostly just him, really. Yeah. With Scarlett Johansson yeah. in his ear. I don't know how they did that. But, yeah, um, yeah like, it is just wildly impressive. And so then yeah. my, my question that I had was, like, did we like not we me and you or even just people, yeah, yeah. but like did we fuck up by giving him the oscar for joker because like he has so many better movies so many better performances yeah i don't know what hollywood's fascination with is like with the losing an obscene amount of weight for like a man and then like equating that to be a powerful performance like I, I don't I don't want to like reduce that performance to what that was, but I know so much of the conversation around it was like, look at his physical transformation. Like, you know, Christian Bale can be kind of put into the same category yeah. in a lot of ways. And he's like almost the, the poster child for it, really. Totally. Yeah. He he sort of like started it in a lot of ways. And then yeah, so like I don't know. The Joker for me was very mid. Like it's I also am like obsessed with Heath Ledger's Joker. So I was already kind of like not going to be, uh, you know, I, I was going to be a hard person to like win over with that performance. I think he did some interesting things, but I think that performance was very one note. You know, it was just like, yeah, he's obviously mentally unstable. Okay. You know, it's like, but we don't really get to see a lot of dimension. We don't get to see, you know, emotional growth or depth or you know, different types of emotions. It was just sort of like a very one note from the get-go. He's obviously unhinged and his physical transformation, yes, is, is I guess, impressive, but Oscar-worthy? Mm, I'm, I, yeah, I would say no. And obviously I think 
the Oscars do not exist in like a vacuum of just pure cinematic critique. It's very much influenced by like the cultural zeitgeist. And I think that movie was heavily, heavily affected by the like cultural conversation around it at the time. And even his just like performance, it, and I will say performance in the press junkets around the movie too, just kind of, uh, you know, is is equally, if not as important as the performance itself in this day and age in terms of what gets Oscar attention. So yeah, I'll say uh, not entirely warranted, but again, he is, I think, an Oscar level actor. Like I think- absolutely. Yeah, you know, like uh, broadly speaking, over his whole filmography, is would deserve to to win an Oscar at some point. Whether that was the role or not, I'll say probably not. <laughs> I just think they tend to get it wrong on the role, but like, as long as I yeah. guess the person, like we're saying, like he deserves one, maybe two. Who knows? Like maybe yeah. even more. Yeah. So as long as he yeah. has one, sure, I guess that's okay but yeah for for that role i i don't i don't i don't know <laughs> yeah especially again like with the master like if we're talking about like mentally unstable kind of like out there characters the ma- like his character in the master i think had a lot more complexity and like layers and different you know subtleties to it and but anyways i digress <laughs> the last thing that i have for you and you know i'll, I'll open the floor because you, you did say up top that you had quite a bit to say about her, but the, the <laughs> last thing, the last thing I have for you is just the whole lost in translation relationship. And so yes, yes. for anyone who doesn't know lost in translation was a movie by Sofia Coppola, um, which one of the central conflicts in it, one of the central storylines is about a young marriage sort of falling apart. And yeah. The inspiration for that was her marriage to Spike Jones. And fast forward, I think, what, 10, 12, 13 years, Spike Jones makes her, which one of the central conflicts and storylines in that movie is the young marriage falling apart. And so these movies obviously are talking to each other in a way. And so I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on Lost in Translation? Is mm-hmm. it one of your favorites? Do you go back to it? Or... Do you sort of say like, no, he, maybe Spike Jones just did a better job with her than she did with Lost in Translation? Yeah. Um, so I was maybe like a bit later to the realization that those were almost like companion pieces. I didn't realize that they were married for a long time and that, you know, they were very much similar movies in, in theme at least. And once I had realized that, I rewatched Lost in Translation, rewatched her. One, it's just kind of funny that Scarlett Johansson is in both of them. Like just yeah, you couldn't have you couldn't have written it except they did. Yeah. But. <laughs> except they did. Um, which is interesting. And even and again, I don't know if this was deliberate or not, but even just some of the framing of like, you know, there's these gorgeous shots of Scarlett Johansson in I guess it is Tokyo and, you know, with these like very like glass bedroom essentially, and you get like these cityscape shots. And there are so many shots of Joaquin in his bedroom, glass walls, cityscape, which I guess is LA in this case, but, you know, so like some mirroring and just in terms of like shots and, you know, of like kind of the isolation and 
being alone in, in your room at night, I guess. Um, so that part was interesting to me. I think on the whole, I do like her better than Lost in Translation. I think I felt more emotionally attached to it in some ways. Like, I don't know if maybe like the Bill Murray of it all in Lost of Translation, I had like a harder time, like, because he was like the central, yeah. like in a lot of ways, like we were following his story more than Scarlett's. So I feel like maybe if the movie had focused a little bit more on like her inner world and her isolation and stuff a bit more, I would have maybe connected to it a little bit more, but yeah, I guess I don't have a ton to say, but that it's just kind of interesting to be able to watch both of those. Like, okay, you know, there's, I don't think either of them were malicious about it. You know, I think both of them seemed very like tender about their relationships with each other. And obviously it's fiction. So you don't know which parts were just put in there for story's sake and which were like the more grounded, you know, representations of what they went through. But I think it's interesting just from like a, I don't know, a media perspective of like, oh, these two huge filmmakers just kind of like putting out these pieces for each other and are not, maybe not for each other, but that relate to each other in a pretty obvious way and, and having those out there for the people to kind of dissect at, at their own will, you know, it's kind of fun. Well, I think that it, it must be one of the only instances where a, a former married couple gets to make two separate movies dealing yeah. with and unpacking their marriage because you know yes hollywood didn't let women make movies for a very very long time so like there, there just wasn't the opportunity yeah. to do it but yeah i do totally. I, I think it's just it's just an interesting like they make a great double feature to go from one to the other yeah. because then you can you can point out all the connections you can see them all pretty plainly and so totally. yeah, i think they are uh yeah they're just two interesting movies to to look yeah. at but uh is there any last things you want to say about her any anything that we didn't bring up i mean i think the only other I just, like i said i did take notes i'm a bit of a nerd but um i think because we had mentioned that the only oscar that this movie won was for the screenplay so there were i don't know i do i do love like a screenplay that has like a profound line of some kind and there was a couple i would say that like really stood out to me just from like again a screenwriting perspective and one that i i love when like a line from a movie can come up in a conversation with someone because you're like oh my god i heard this thing in this movie and like it's exactly what we're talking about right now and it's when joaquin's like talking to scarlet and he's like i feel like i felt everything i'm ever going to feel and i'm only going to feel lesser versions of what i've already felt for like the rest of my life. And I was just like, whoa, that's that's such like a gut punch of like, cause you know, you don't really know if he's wrong or not. Yeah. You're like, what if he, what if he is true? Like, what if that's true? What if we've already felt the most extreme of feelings we're ever gonna feel? And it's either just gonna be like dull repetitions or lesser versions of that from now to the end of time. And especially I think when it's kind of layered in this, like the ending of a relationship, you're kind of like, oh, what if I never fall in love again? What if I never feel this way about somebody again? And I just really loved how that stood out to me. And then another line that I think Scarlett says 
I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure she does, but it says the past is just a story we tell ourselves. And I'm just like, wow. Yeah. Cause it's, it's come and gone. And, you know, especially if you're like an anxious person in a ruminator and you go back and you like replay these memories. And obviously that's like kind of a theme throughout the movie where he's kind of, he sees these like dialogueless blurbs for the most part of like his, his relationship with his ex-wife and he talks a lot about like going over these past conversations and arguments and he wants to you know defend himself against things you know she said about him and it is just a story though you're just retelling yourself this little story of something that's happened and it doesn't really matter anymore in a lot of ways or it's maybe not even fully true anymore because you're remembering it differently or so yeah I just really appreciated that again in terms of like the spectrum of different kinds of like lines of dialogue that we can get like the little alien guy be like fuck you come on like whatever and then also like having these pretty profound lines that you're like kind of have to sit with for a while after the movie's over so yeah I think that was the last thing I kind of wanted to say about it well like that is perfect because like you're obviously a podcaster because that has given me the perfect segue into the recommendation which I gave you, which at first I only gave you because I was like, well, I need a sort of very visually impressive romantic story, yes. romantic movie. Yeah. Uh, and so the movie I gave you was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah. But I think both of those quotes play into the story totally. of that movie. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will be talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So we're back and we've watched Portrait of Lady on Fire, the Celine Siama movie. Um, it's sort of becoming Celine Siama month on this podcast, but uh, I'm not, yeah. I'm not that upset about it really <laughs> but uh rochelle the first thing I, I would need you to do is give a brief plot description for anyone who has not seen the movie yes so it takes place in france in the 19 or sorry not the 1970s the 1700s and a woman who is a painter she is commissioned to paint a portrait of another young woman who is kind of set to wed an italian man I believe and it's kind of an arranged marriage of sorts and she has just lost her sister to I guess an apparent suicide it's a pretty subtle you know hint to it but that her her sister had kind of thrown herself off of the cliffs not too long before and her mother has like commissioned this painter to to paint a picture of her but at the beginning at least she's not allowed to like actually sit for it so it's kind of like she's getting these like sketches of her kind of by by night and just by kind of observing and being her companion so it's a uh, and and their relationship develops i suppose throughout the course of the movie first thing i need to know is did you just did you even enjoy portrait of a lady on fire did you did you like it i did like it and it's funny i was really happy that you suggested this one because it's 
been on my list for a long time. And coincidentally, like I had just watched Tomboy, uh, which was one of her earlier films, like literally like a few days before we were talking. So I was like, amazing. Like I already wanted to like keep watching her filmography. And I think just from like a filmmaking perspective, she is just such a precise and incredible filmmaker. Everything. I don't think she can make a bad movie. Like, and maybe that's just my bias at this point. But I think even if, you know, maybe the story doesn't emotionally hit you as much, which to be honest, this one didn't hit me as uh, hard emotionally as maybe I was expecting it to. But I, I literally can't fault the the filmmaking, the writing, you know, any of it the cinematography it's at the very least I can appreciate it as an incredible piece of art and I think her movies are art like you know to be really pretentious about it but I think especially because this one you know revolves around visual art so much as just like a motif it's sort of Barry Lyndon-esque in that like so many of these screen like if you were just take a screen grab of like any one of these shots like from a composition standpoint from a color from a whatever standpoint like they're all going to be stunning and I think this movie was again a, a visual treat in its own way um yeah so I did I did enjoy it I, I I think it probably would warrant a second watch because I think especially you know reading your review of it like it is incredibly detailed piece of work and I'm sure there were things that kind of went over my head or you know on second viewing I would just appreciate an extra level so yeah but I'm, I'm a fan it's, it's a beautiful movie it, it sounds though like the because like my next question here is a sort of what jumped out to you on, on the first watch but it sounds like it really yeah. was the cinematography it sounds like it was sort of the visual language that Siyama uses and yeah. utilizes totally yeah like it, it was just a like I think again so many of the shots like I'm also such a fan of like a vintage aesthetic so I think she did like the 1700s like a period piece like so beautifully like it was a pretty they were simple locations like they shot pretty much entirely at this one kind of like the house yeah by yeah. these gorgeous cliffs like so the location scouting you know whatever like that really lent to I think a lot of the beauty of the film is like being on these incredible cliff sides and the beach and you know it was beautiful to look at and like the attention to detail and the set design and costume design and all of that was, was obviously very meticulously thought out so definitely again visually really stood out to me and I would say the performances really stood out to me um it was funny because I just watched Tar and you saw Tar, you did yep, see yep, Tar. Yep. Um, and I, I really liked, I, I'm, you'll maybe have to help me with the, the name because I'm forgetting the oh, woman um, who plays Marianne. Uh, uh, Nomi Merlant. Yes. So she plays Lydia Tar's assistant. And then when I saw Portrait of Lady, I was like, oh my gosh, like I had just been introduced to this actor and then kind of saw her twice in the, the course of like a week but an incredible actor, like, again, incredibly subtle, like with a lot of Siama's work is like very grounded, realistic dialogue and performances, like, it's never over the top and, you know, very put on. And I think she gave such like a nuanced, tender performance, you know, without being overly like, you know, dramatic or verbose about it. It was 
both actors, both of the main characters were incredible actors. So I think their performances really stood out to me as well. You said that you just had also recently watched Tomboy. Have, have you checked out mm-hmm. any of her other movies? Yes. Um, the first movie I saw of her was Petite Maman. And that's like, that's my favorite of her films. I, I've only, have I only seen three now? I think it's been Petite Maman, Tomboy, and, and now this one, unless I'm completely blanking on one. But I loved Petite Maman so much. It was, again, like, she is so not heavy handed. It's always, I, I really love a naturalistic performance. I, I think, especially, you know, this can be said about Tomboy as well, like getting them out of children um, and just really getting the sense that you're kind of observing children in their natural habitat. And yet it's still structured. You know, it's not like a just a free form kind of slice of life necessarily. Like there's definitely like a narrative flow to it. But I, yeah, that was definitely when I was like, oh, she's a, going to be a filmmaker 100% that I'm going to watch like all of her movies and and continue to as she makes them. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm a fan and I was definitely very moved by Tomboy as well. It was a, a pretty like emotionally gut-wrenching story. And again, without being like over the top and, you know, overly dramatic, it was just very grounded and true to like what the emotional heart of you know, her storytelling is trying to achieve. So yeah, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I think the what's interesting with this one, because uh, I have now watched all of her feature films anyways, and they all right. tend to be set, you know, in our time, maybe a little bit before, right. but not, not huge time difference. And, and then all of a sudden you have this, you have Portrait of Lady on Fire, which is set yeah. hundreds of years ago. And you're sort of like, wow, like, okay, she can kind of do anything i think really is what totally. is what i'm seeing here and you know yeah. it, it is just um i think most people will probably th- this is probably her biggest and most popular movie in terms of yes like name recognition i don't know if, if that's a thing with a movie per se but uh, i think most people would know about this movie before they would know about tomboy or girlhood or anything like that but i think yeah. it is just a um just an interesting way of coming into her filmography because then all of a sudden you sort of fast forward 200 years and all of her other stories are set in our own time but yeah Yeah, totally this little outlier here but Mm -hmm. um I'm curious obviously this is a bit sparse and you know that's Siyama's style Mm -hmm. when it comes to the movie and I think we touched about or I touched on it with uh, my mom in the petite my mom movie it's like mm-hmm. it is all about the performances and so yes. you said that they did stand out to you and the the two sort of main characters that we get yeah and so yeah just sort of you already sort of talked a little bit about Nomi Merlant and and her mm-hmm. what she was doing in the movie what mm-hmm. about Adele Hanel because I think for English movie English language movie fans this was probably the first yeah. thing we saw her in and I just right. like, what an introduction. Yeah, no, I was really amazed by her. Um, again, I think it was kind of such an interesting reflection of her as an actor because it was so, because she was being painted and there was so much, even of the dialogue surrounding like her facial expressions and like her anger and 
where she was at mentally, because I think that like a few times throughout, they were sort of, even our initial introduction to her, she's barreling towards a cliff and her sister just died by barreling herself off a cliff. And so it definitely puts you in her mindset right away of like, Ooh, where is she at? You know, and like, there's definitely the conversation of like, is she then, is she upset? Is she sad? Is it anger? And definitely like the anger, I think is where we kind of land on her. And I really loved the like feminine portrayal of anger, which is often very subdued and like internalized. And it's, it is maybe just in like the twinge of a lip or like a look in the eye. But if you know what you're looking for, you can tell like the anger is simmering just at the very, very, very surface and that maybe she could snap at any moment. And I think she really carried that throughout the whole movie in a really beautiful way. And then of course the end shot of like the just extreme zoom in of her like hearing this music like again, like comparable to like a lot of the extreme close-up long shots on Joaquin of like you have to captivate your audience throughout that. Like you're not giving them a ton to look at. It's a pretty simple shot composition. We're not even getting her head on. And it's just trusting that the audience can fill in the context of this incredibly emotional interaction that is from like a balcony across like a, a a huge orpheum or or whatever you want to call it and just the the welling up of emotion in her face throughout that last shot was just like holy like again subtle but also incredibly impactful and you don't you don't need a lot of like a, a narrator like you know filling it in or like a you don't need dialogue you don't need anything and again that just I think goes to Siama's like really really natural and like soft touch when it comes to storytelling of just like we know what they've been through we know that the emotion that comes behind the song and just seeing her performance through that was like oof, incredible I think the the thing that I love in movies and sometimes you're, you're lucky enough to get it is like Adele Hanel the actor and then uh is mm-hmm. it uh, Eloise Heloise the, is the character and Heloise, yeah you you the first like I don't think she, she doesn't show up for 15 or 20 minutes I think in in yeah. the start of the movie and so you get so much build up to this character and you get so much you know all the people are saying like this is what she's like and you know she yeah. won't pose for you and you know she wore out the last artist and then the yeah. the sort of the house um I don't know, was she a servant? I don't know what she was, but the young girl who mm-hmm. worked in the house is sort of like, yeah, she's absolutely stunning and all this, you know what I mean? Like you start yeah. to make a, a picture in your head of like, okay, what is yes. this character going to be like? And then Adele Hanel shows up and you're just like, oh, wow. Like this character and this actress are just so perfect for each other. And it's just like, it is sort of like bowls you over. I, I remember the the first time I saw this, I was lucky enough to catch it in theaters and so just to like the reveals of her throughout the movie, just like, Jesus oh. Christ, like, oh my no God. <laughs> oh, yeah, this would have been beautiful to see in theaters for sure. And I think that's also one of like the treats of watching, you know, else like foreign cinema, I guess, when you're not inundated by like A-list stars where, you know, it just allows you to like really immerse yourself in the 
story even more, especially with like a period piece like this. Like you're not just like, oh, that's, you know, Scarlett Johansson yeah. in a corset. Like, yeah. you know, you're like, oh, like I, I'm not familiar with her work. So it allows me to sort of like suspend my disbelief in like an extra layer and be like, she is Heloise. Like this is, I don't know who she is except for being this person. And and I think that really helps, I think, with like adding that extra extra layer of like naturalism with the work. Pretty incredible. I gotta get into a couple of like criticisms that I've seen online. I don't mm. necessarily fully agree with them, but I'm curious to sort okay. of see where you come down on them. And one of them is the love story love angle between Marianne and Heloise and so like this is a romantic movie this is supposed to be a, a movie about these two falling in love and so mm -hmm. the thing that I had read a few times online is that it just like comes too quickly and you know all mm. of a sudden these two sort of there was maybe there was there's obviously some attraction there from both yeah. sides but that the actual sort of like, this is my going to be my enduring lifelong love that it just came too quickly for some people. And so I'm just curious, like, where did you fall on that sort of criticism? I don't think I, I walked away with it feeling that way, honestly. Like I, I thought it built up in a pretty natural way. And like the kind of time restraint of that, like her mom was coming back. And I think that kind of made sense for it to be like, okay, well, we got to act on this kind of now or never potentially, because you're literally going to be leaving to get married soon. So especially when it's a queer love story, obviously way back then too, like there's that extra level of like forbiddenness to it. Like they weren't gonna be like, Oh, you're gay. Awesome. That's so great. I'm happy for you. Like that. It kind of made sense that it was like, you did kind of feel the pressure cooker of like the time, like, Oh, they're running out of time together. Like you said, I think it was pretty clear right off the get-go that they're infatuated with each other or falling for each other or whatever you want to call it. So that when, you know, it happened that they finally did kind of admit their feelings for each other. I don't know. I thought it made sense, but I, I, I guess I could also see, you know, where people would maybe have that criticism, but that wasn't something that I really was like walked away from the movie feeling. No, I, 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 I'd read them a few times uh, on sort of letterboxed comments and stuff. And yeah. I sort of like, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree because I think yeah. the movie does a good enough job before they get together sort of like mm -hmm. halfway through or three quarters of the way through that like Marianne, what she sees in Heloise is this like vision that needs to be, you know, captured. And she's, she's the painter, she's the artist. And like, I, th I think you can see in her, especially when they first meet of like, oh my God, like, who is this? And then I think with Heloise, you see, you get a little bit about the fact that she like was living in a convent, I think, or she, mm. she'd been, she'd moved away and, and she was now being brought back because her sister had passed away and, and she right. now had to marry this guy that her sister was going to marry. And I think right. with, with her, she sees in Marianne, this woman who has like lived a life and had experiences yeah. and read books and seen music and all this sort of stuff, all these things that she had no access to yeah. because she'd obviously, or she might not have decided somebody else might've decided for her, but 
she, yeah. this this life that she was going to leave and then all of a sudden you know she's ripped out of that into something else yeah and so i think yeah. you can see in both of them a like oh like the this person has something that i'm interested in yeah and, and then it sort of grows out of that and so like for me i don't know i i i don't buy the whole too quickly thing yeah again i i don't know i just trust Siama so much as like a filmmaker that I'm like no it was how she wanted it yeah. so like and it's not to be questioned <laughs> I don't know the other sort of big one that I that I read a few times from from some people and I'm curious about again is all of a sudden there is a unwanted pregnancy subplot and I right. think some people were sort of like where did this come from why is it included and I don't like again for me it all sort of made sense in the story and it's not something that I bumped up against, but I think for some right. people it was. And so again, just sort of like, what were your thoughts on that? Obviously you've only seen the movie once. So like, yeah, I'm not asking uh, for like a philosophical <laughs> essay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, on yeah, maybe yeah. What you wanted, but was it, was it something that you were sort of, you sort of like, like, Oh, I don't know about this or, or how'd you feel? Yeah. I guess maybe I'm like a little bit in between maybe you and the critics, like from a, a screenwriting perspective, I get that they would kind of need this extra B story, I guess, or even C story, depending on how you want to look at it of like, there's this kind of extra tension or forbidden secret or, you know, that thematically probably ties in without too much question. I don't think it was super, I don't know. I, I guess I didn't feel like super like drawn to that, part of the story I was just kind of like okay this is like something else they're kind of all experiencing together like it's uh, you know I guess interesting especially in this like climate of abortion and you know of you know people with uteruses bodies and what they have to go through and all of that kind of thing that you know it has that kind of extra layer of like yeah and in still to this day people have to hide their abortions and it's this kind of forbidden thing that isn't uh, you know, that safe or accessible for people to, to get that done. And yeah, but I, I guess I, I wasn't like, I don't know. I, it was very interesting though, her getting the abortion with a baby, like cooing at her face. That was such an interesting choice. So from that perspective, I was just like, damn, she's, she's saying something here, you know, like the baby's literally kind of like pawing at her face as she's like crying, like tears, you know, streaming down her face. Um, definitely a strong choice but yeah it, I guess I didn't walk away from it feeling like oh that was like a super integral part to the story for me it definitely felt like okay we need a bit of like a B or C story to kind of go in tandem with this and the fill out the character of this kind of housemaid or or whatever you want to call her a little bit more but yeah I guess that's how I felt about it <laughs> I think I just I'm with you though where I just I trust Siama. If she's putting something in the movie, yeah. I'm going to be like, okay, I'll go with it. I'm yeah. not going to question totally. too much here. So she certainly, uh, she certainly earned that sort of level of yeah. fandom from I me and so. respect and stuff. So uh, just bef- yeah. like, as we're leading out here, just sort of any favorite mm-hmm. scenes, any, any last things you want to say about mm. Portrait of a Lady on Fire? I mean, definitely that last scene is pretty incredible. Um, like, I said the kind of like extreme zoom in on on Heloise at the end there was pretty powerful I think again just maybe like from a 
beautiful shot composition and, you know, just stunning cinematography standpoint when she is standing with her dress on fire and you kind of like, she's looking at her through the flames and there's that really intense eye contact and you're just like, whoo, that's stunning. Like, it's just beautiful, beautiful. Um, yeah, so definitely like some standout scenes there just both in the emotion they they hold and you know from all of the different cinematography and framing choices that were made yeah I thought it was kind of funny also just from like a storyline perspective and connecting it to her of like a bit of a forbidden love aspect for to both of them of like Theodore and and an OS system that it's like kind of a different kind of love that maybe some people would turn their noses up at same for a period lesbian piece you know where like people would all it's kind of also well it wasn't kind of it was a forbidden love and kind of had that oh I need to hide this away standpoint that was kind of a fun overlap between the two but yeah I'm a fan and I'm I'm glad that I I, I got to I was gonna I was gonna watch it already but I was glad that it, it got kind of jacked up to the, the top of my watch list I I am yeah the 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 scene at the end you brought up a couple of times I think that's probably one of my favorite yeah. scenes as well because I when I saw this I had also like it was like a second run cinema that I saw it in so it had already mm. played and so lots of people had already seen it and so right. that scene had been highlighted in basically everything that I had read and so I was kind of, of <laughs> like gunning for it I was sort of like uh, like let's see if this actually works and then you're like yeah it's yeah it's stunning yeah but I just wanted to ask because the the other scene that you mentioned where she it is the scene of Heloise dress on fire yeah. and that is where the the portrait comes from but mm -hmm. just before or I guess as that is also happening that's one of the only scenes where we get music in the movie and yes so I was just curious like had you noticed that there was no music and then all of a sudden there's like a chorus of women singing or, or yes. was that like, how did that scene play out for you? Yeah, that's funny because I, I really love scores in movies. So I'm usually you paying attention to like, how, how are we doing with this? And like, you know, cause scores can definitely obviously add a ton to a scene, but they can also detract or be way too heavy handed and like, force the emotion of what you know the filmmaker is trying to evoke from the audience so from that it's kind of like with great power comes great responsibility with a score I think and again I think that speaks to her subtlety of filmmaking is that, that yeah it's there was no music it was and then a really interesting choice though to like again just from like a, a filmmaker perspective compared to her other filmography of like I was very caught off guard by the scene I was it didn't to me really fit into her sort of style necessarily but I don't know I I think bold choices should be rewarded especially in the context of like not overly using music in the rest of the score or throughout the movie and and again like with the piano piece as well that comes up again when when um Marianne's like showing Heloise that song on the piano and it comes up at the end like so the use of music in this film was very uh, deliberate and you know that's pretty interesting but yeah it definitely was like a little caught off guard by it but I thought it was cool it, it felt very witchy and neat I, I liked the vibe for sure I think uh, a Siyama witch movie uh, like 
first day, first in line, I'm right there. But I would love that. Would love that. <laughs> we can uh, we can sort of wrap it up there. I think you know uh, I I think both of these movies are absolutely wonderful. Um, again, you know this is I think going to be two French movies in a row, uh, two Siama movies mm. in a row. So I'll see I'll Fun. see who who out there actually gets back to me and says, yeah, I went and checked this out, but. You know, yeah. like uh, what Bong Joon Ho said is, it's only a, a one inch barrier. So you know, yes, I think we we can all get it's over worth it. it. Yeah, it's it's so it's worth, worth it. it. It's so worth it. But uh, Rochelle, thank you so so much for coming on and and talking a couple of movies and you know educating me on morgues and mortality. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. This was so much fun. I like obsessed with talking about movies, so I was very excited to jump on the opportunity to talk about these so thank you for having me no problem so yeah anyone out there mortality in the morgue uh check it out it's it's on spotify and i imagine wherever else you you, yeah. you get your podcasts so it's out there it's uh infinitely fascinating for anyone who is interested in death and <laughs> the death industry so yeah thank you I will be back next week with another guest, another movie, another recommendation. So I will see everybody next week. 